0: I just want to read one verse, and uh, I'm not going to be doing an exposition of this verse, but I believe it'll get a picture in our mind, a theme, and we'll come back to it as we walk through several texts today. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10. By this it is evident... Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's Word. We see here very clearly a distinguishing mark of the people of God is that they will love the brethren. And we could also say the flip side of that, a distinguishing mark of the people who are continuing in enmity and rebellion against God is that they do not love the brethren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to gather with the saints. Lord, I believe there are many here who would say that they were glad... When they heard, let us go into the house of the Lord. Lord, it is good to be in the midst of your people because we know that you dwell in the midst of your people. Lord, it's not superficial things that have drawn us here. But it is your indwelling spirit that dwells in each of us, that has drawn us here, that's gathered here from not only different areas of life, different social spheres, but Lord, different histories and backgrounds. Lord, if we could look back to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, we could trace your wondrous deeds in working out all things according to the counsel of your most holy pleasure working in all things to bring individuals into this room. And Lord, I pray that we would not take those things for granted, that each of us is here for a very specific reason and purpose this morning. You've brought us here. You have a word for us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to hear that word. I pray that you'd help us to see past the words of a man and hear the words of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things because we believe that Christ is glorified when His people gather and when His people are unified in the truth and in love for one another. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've all had the experience of traveling to a popular tourist destination or a vacation spot, an area that is flourishing, whose economy is basically built around the influx of travelers and tourists. And when you're traveling to a place like this, very often the main highways leading to that destination are littered with different signs and billboards and advertisements of of various attractions that are going to be in that area to which you're traveling. You're, You're not there yet. There might be dinner shows. There might be restaurants, theme parks, outlet malls, all kinds of different signs, all pointing to different things, littering the same pathway, and all of these signs finding their fulfillment in the same general location. Well, the story of salvation in Scripture is very much the same as that kind of pathway. There's outlined what I'm calling a pathway of redemption, a trajectory that very simply we could say is from darkness to light, or as we've been reading in the Old Testament, we could say from Egypt to Zion. It's depicted either in the actual historical events of the people of Israel as we watch them come out of bondage and enter into the the promised land, or it might just be set forth by way of doctrine and explanation, just asserting. This is, these, these are the signs that we watch out for. And along this pathway of redemption, there are numerous signs. They all reference different works of grace in salvation. And they all find their fulfillment and their consummate end in the same place. Glory. These works of grace are so important and they're addressed so frequently that if you gather up all the texts that deal with that particular work of grace, you can use the texts as sort of pin drops on a map tracing your pathway from, speaking allegorically, Egypt to Zion, from prior to Christ to glory. Take, for example, the knowledge of God. The Bible is very clear that in the wisdom of the world, or in the wisdom of God, the world knew not God. That lost people in a state of lostness apart from Christ do not know God. That's their condition. But 1 John 2, 3 says, Speaking of Christians, we have come to know Him. So there's, there's point A to point B. I once did not know God. Now I've become a Christian. I've been born again. Now I do know God. But we also see in Scripture texts like Peter uses in 2 Peter 3 where he gives a command to be growing in the knowledge of the Lord. So it's not like we immediately come to a full knowledge. We we go from no knowledge to knowledge, but then we also got to grow in that knowledge until eventually we reach glory. The Scripture refers to that as seeing face to face. Another example would be a general understanding of biblical truth. Apart from Christ, prior to salvation, the Bible says that we are alienated and hostile in our minds. That's the condition of a lost person. They cannot understand biblical truth. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. But the spiritual person judges all things. Once you're born again, you come to an understanding of some spiritual matters... Well, we know we have to grow in that as well, as Peter says about Paul. There are some things that Paul writes that are kind of hard to understand. You've got to grow in them. You've got to learn. And again, when we get to glory, we won't be looking through a glass dimly. We're going to see clearly. A third example, obedience to God. Ephesians 2 says that prior to salvation, we are all walking as sons of disobedience. That's a lost person, disobedient. But when a person is born again, they begin to obey, but not just obey. Romans 6.17 says that we have become obedient from the heart, a true heartfelt obedience. But then again, you continue reading the New Testament. Paul says things like, put to death that which is earthly in you. So I am obedient, but there are some areas where I'm not fully obedient yet. I've got to continue working out that obedience until, again, we get to glory eventually. We know that there's nothing accursed in glory, all of our carnal lusts will be gone forever and we will be uh, be able to dwell in perfect obedience to Christ for all of eternity. Now, our subject that we've been studying for the past several weeks is corporate unity. Unity in the local church. And what I've tried to do is gather up a multitude of texts throughout the New Testament and put them into some kind of a, a categorized form. And what I want to do today is show you that unity in the body of Christ or solidarity in the body of Christ is another one of those main attractions in the redemptive process that if you gather up the texts and the scriptural evidence you'll see that there are signs advertisements of unity in the body littering the pathway of redemption ultimately bringing us to glory again we can trace Christian unity along the pathway of redemption so here's What I want to try to prove to you by way of a propositional assertion, unity in the body of Christ is one of the many traits that are used as signposts to mark out the pathway from our condition in Adam all the way to glory. And what we can do is use these signposts to decipher my location. Where am I on on the map? And then I can use my location. If I say, well, here's where I am, then what do I need to be doing from this point forward to get to where I'm going? just just like you would on a map. So that's what I want to show you today. Again, we're going to look at a bunch of texts uh, all across the New Testament. The first thing I want to do by way of a first main heading is just sort of outline the general pathway of redemption. There are many secondary roads and back roads that we could say, are are all traveling toward glory. These secondary, and I'm not saying there are many ways to get to heaven. I'm using the analogy of these general things that we're all working through to bring us to glory. But what is the primary highway of redemption along which we're all traveling? That's what I want to outline for you, beginning first at the starting point. Where do we all start? The Bible uses a lot of different language to describe our condition naturally. One of the phrases that it uses is, in Adam. So when we are conceived in the womb, and then we come out of the womb, at that point we are by nature in Adam, which means Adam, the first man, stood as our representative before God in a covenant of works. He represented all of humanity. He broke that covenant so then everybody that He represented, all that would come from His loins also fell into that broken covenant so that at conception, if you're conceived from a human father and a human mother, you come from the loins of Adam and you are conceived a covenant breaker. That's what it means to be in Adam. Guilty from conception of a broken covenant covenant. The scripture says in Adam all die. The Bible also uses the language of without God and without hope. We don't have Him and we don't even have anything to look forward to in that condition. Alienated from God, cut off, severed. Our deeds then as we begin to act as human beings in the world, from infancy, we begin to act. All of our deeds are evil. They are the fruit of evil hearts and evil passions because we're lawbreakers. We just break the law. The Bible says that we're under condemnation. But it even goes farther than that and says that we're actually hostile to God. We're not looking for Him. We don't want Him. No one seeks for God. We don't desire Him. That's our condition from the womb. But then we get on what I'm calling the on ramp. What happens in the life of every saint? If you're a Christian, what happened to bring you onto this highway of glory? The on ramp. Well, first thing that happened was at some point, somehow, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, How will they believe if they'd never heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So somehow, somewhere, perhaps in a single sermon, you heard the gospel. Or perhaps through a a multitude of sermons, you heard a bunch of different pieces of the gospel. And then at one moment, you read a single text of Scripture. And all of those texts of Scripture, all of those truths piled on top of each other and immediately made sense. But at some point, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You learned. Somebody showed you from the Scriptures that in spite of the fact that you were alienated from God, that all of your deeds were evil, that you were hostile to God, you would not come to Him, did not desire Him in the least, were not seeking Him in spite of that, out of His love and mercy, He sent His Son into the world so that you would no longer have to remain in Adam, but you could be placed in Christ. So Christ comes and He lives according to the law of God perfectly. Then He goes to the cross. The sins of His people are laid upon Him and He bears the curse of that sin to the cross and God His Father empties out the wrath that was due to the people of God onto His Son. Christ satisfies the covenant in the place of His people, and His Father raises Him from the dead to signify the work is completed. It's done. At some point, somewhere, at some time, in some way, you heard that message, and as you heard it, not only did God send a preacher to give you the message, but as you heard it, God sent His Holy Spirit to come inside of you and to help you understand and receive that message and produce a positive response. We've talked about that on Sunday nights the effectual calling of the Father. God the Father said, Come forth. And in that moment, that message that you might have heard a thousand times before, all of a sudden you heard it in a way you had never heard it before. All of a sudden, all of those truths that, sure, you agreed with, you understood, you've heard them all your life, all of a sudden you heard them in a brand new light. It was real. The Spirit comes in, does the work of regeneration. You're born again, Peter says, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word was the gospel that was preached to you. And you were called out of death into fellowship with God's own Son. So that now having Christ, you have all of the benefits that He won in His obedience and in His death and in His ascension and in His current reign. All of it, every spiritual blessing, is now yours. That's that that got you on the on ramp. You got a new heart, a new spirit, a new will, new desires, new affections. You are a new creature. A new creature created inside of you by the Holy Spirit of God. You're given a new life. God implants in you, he writes on your heart his law. He gives you a fear of God. Not that you run from him, A fear that causes you to run to Him when you sin. He puts in your heart a love for Him. You you weren't looking for Him, didn't want Him, hostile to Him, didn't want to have anything to do with Him. And all of a sudden, you love Him. And the more you learn about Him, you love Him. As I said last Lord's Day evening, in that moment there is a decisive break with the old way and a drastically new work is begun. That's the on-ramp. And now you're on this highway. But along this highway of redemption we all encounter things that keep the, the road from being smooth sailing. It's not just to get on the road, no obstructions, put the pedal to the floor and fly to glory. We know that. There's... There's road construction, there's speed bumps, there's detours. We would call these issues remaining corruption within us. We could add to that things of the world and the things that the devil throws in our faces. But just focusing on the remaining corruption in each of us, John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. We we still have sin. And even Paul could say that he saw in his members another law waging war against the law of his mind and holding him captive to the law of sin that dwelt in his members after conversion. So we're not immediately eradicated of every stain and every hint of sin in our mortal bodies. Therefore, that remaining corruption is going to cause a sequence of what we might consider lifelong traffic jams. It's not just smooth sailing. There's trouble on this highway, but because these obstacles are a reality... The Scripture gives us clear commands that we have to deal with them forcefully and without hesitation. We have to be devoted to maintaining the trajectory. I will not stop moving forward. The Bible uses very strong language in dealing with remaining corruption. Romans eight thirteen, put to death the deeds of the body. Colossians three five, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Ephesians four twenty two, put off your old self. Verse 24, Put on the new self. This putting off and putting on is a lifelong process. Until the day you die, you are putting off and putting on, dealing with obstructions in the highway, dealing with remaining corruption, until finally you will cross the finish line and there will come a day when that journey has ended. All obstructions, all detours are behind us. We're able to rest in glory, free from all corruption. Like children... begin to see those signs on the road and what was a a four-and-a-half-hour trip to them seems like 12 hours. Are we ever going to get to our vacation destination? It just seems like you're in the car and it just never stops and never stops and never stops and then the instant that you see the water of the ocean, all of that trip is completely forgotten in an instant as if it never happened. It's gone. And that's going to happen someday. We will to use the language of Paul, bear the image of the man of heaven. The perishable will put on imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality." Paul says, "Even now we're waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, because, Romans 9:23, God has prepared us beforehand for glory. We're going to reach that destination. So the, the pathway is really simple. You're lost. And then there is a radical change at a moment in time, but then from that radical change there is a progressive working out of that change until it's completed in glory. That's the general pathway of redemption. Every saint of God travels on this same trajectory. Some people have more obstructions. Some people have more construction work. Some people move faster than others. But all travel the same path and every true saint will reach the finish line. All saints. So that's the general pathway of redemption. So now I want to take this doctrine, this this biblical concept of unity in the body of Christ, in the local church, and trace it along that pathway. I want to take another survey of the New Testament and see where the texts fall on this trajectory. And before I begin, I want to remind you that a primary mark of this unity in the body... The Scripture references or calls love. Very simply, love. Not non-confrontation, as I said last Lord's Day. Not the unity of the graveyard, but an active pursuit of loving one another. Paul said in Philippians 2, to complete my joy by being of the same mind and of the same love. Having the same love. Love one another. So then we start... At, again, the same starting point. The state of lostness or the place of the unregenerate. And it is a conclusive staple of the unregenerate man, woman, boy or girl that they will either positively hate Christians or, speaking negatively, they simply will not love the people of God. I'm going to give you four texts, actually seven altogether, from 1 John. Remember that first. John is written, John is writing to the saints so that they would know that they have eternal life. So as they're reading this epistle, what he's saying is, here's how you know that you've got the real thing. And negatively, here's how you might be able to find out if what you think you have is actually a fake. The first thing we see is, again, from that on the offense or this positive, Perspective: Anyone who actively hates other Christians is clearly still in a state of unregeneracy. 1 John 2.9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 1 John 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. His way of life is darkness. 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer... And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In 1 John 4.20a, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So anyone who hates those who are considered brothers in the sense of other professing believers, other supposed brothers, I think this is another one of those things that doesn't make any sense apart from the context of a local church... If they hate those supposed brothers, they're still in darkness. They walk in darkness. They are liars. They say they love God, but they do not love God. And they have no eternal life in them. So if we turn that around, we could say a lost person will be characterized by some bit of animosity. Again, this could be a spectrum toward Christians. But the extremity of that animosity reaches to the depths of what we call hatred. Now, you might hear all of that and say, Well, that was close. Because I don't hate Christians. I don't hate anybody. That's strong language. I must be born again because I don't hate Christians. But John goes further again. From the negative standpoint, anyone who simply does not love the brethren is in the same state as those who actively hate Christians. You're not better off because you don't hate if you do not love. The text I read at the beginning, 1 John 3:10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. There again the context is loving the brethren. In 1 John 4 20b, he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, or who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Now, love, again, is active. It's often defined as pursuing the greatest good or the honor of the object of love, despite personal cost to yourself. It's active, it is a pursuit, it's something in which you are engaged to accomplish. Something you do. So those who do not love the brothers don't know God, don't love God, and they're children of the devil. They're not any better off than people who actively hate Christians. Again, we could turn that around. It is a conclusive staple of the unregenerate man, woman, boy, or girl that they do not love the people of God. Now I did not say that it's a staple of the unregenerate person that they won't gather with the people of God because we all know a lot of lost people that gather with the people of God Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night and we see them Monday through Saturday and we know there is not a glimmer of light within them. I didn't say that it's a staple of the unregenerate person that they can't even pretend to love the people of God because a lot of false professors pretend to love. I didn't say... It's a staple of the unregenerate person that they can't even put up with other Christians. They can't even put up with the people of God because we all know a lot of lost people who've been putting up with the people of God for a long time. As a matter of fact, they'll even share a parking lot with them twice a week. It's a conclusive staple of the unregenerate person that they do not love the brethren. They do not pursue the good of the brethren regardless of personal cost to themselves. Now why is that true? Why can the Bible say that definitively without hesitation? Well, the answer is because the unity amongst the members of the body is rooted in the unity between the head and the members of the body. Remember, Christ said things like this, Luke 9, 47, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There the child is a picture of the, 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 the humble believer. Whoever receives a humble saint, Christ says, I so identify with that saint that when you receive them, it's like you're receiving me. In Mark 9:41, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ... Not because they're nice people, not because you look like you're thirsty, not because they are engaged in humanitarian efforts, but because you belong to Christ, that person will by no means lose his reward. Why? Because of that solidarity. They see something in that person, namely the Spirit of Christ, and they say, since that person belongs to Christ, I'm giving them a cup of cold water. Love for Christ issues in love for His people. And so a rejection of Christ is going to issue in a rejection of His people. So because of that solidarity, it is a distinctive mark of the unregenerate man, woman, boy, or girl that they do not love and very often hate Christians. But even if you say, well, I don't hate them, but you're not loving them, you're no better off. We all started here. We might have been willing to gather with Christians. We might have been able, been able to find some superficial appealing trait about some of them where we could get along with them. We might have been able to pretend to love them. We might have been able to put up with them a couple times a week because we felt obligated to be around them. We might even have been willing to share a parking lot with the Christians twice a week. But apart from having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, There will be no true love for the brothers and sisters in a local church because there is no relationship with the head of that church. This is where we have to be very careful and be very uh, honest with ourselves because there are a lot of people who have no problem getting along with somebody anywhere. They're just that type of person. They've never met a stranger. I see people like that in the store. that will talk to me like we hung out yesterday. And I ain't got a clue who they are. And I think, man, I would love to be as friendly as that guy. He just keeps talking across the aisles. He just keeps it going. This conversation's happening with a man I don't know. He doesn't know that I'm a Christian. That's not Christian love. That's just being a nice person. A lot of people never met a stranger, and they're the same way when they come to church. They come to church people. They can get along with anybody. They're nice folks. But when they leave the building, all of the relationship stays at that building. There's no longer any concern for the members of the body. One commentator says, If we are not concerned with or vigilant in respect of the fruit of the Spirit in others, then it is because we do not burn with holy zeal for honor for Christ Himself. We all started there. A lot of us were young. We don't remember feeling that way. We thought, well, we always got along with Christians. But something happened. And your relationship with the brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, has changed. You got onto the on-ramp. You were born again. And so now it is a decisive or conclusive fruit of regeneration that any man, woman, boy, or girl who's been born again will gravitate toward... And here I've chosen my language intentionally. Gravitate toward be assimilated by and grow in love for the people of God. We can see that immediate response at the very beginnings of the church in the book of Acts. The very beginning of the New Testament church, Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Literally, there was one heart and soul among them. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. One heart, one soul, united in thought and affections. There was harmony among them. And nobody had to get them together and say, oh, we're gonna have a seminar. Listen, y'all been born again. Here's what we gotta do. We're gonna have to have one heart and one soul. If you can't have one heart and one soul, we're just gonna have to go back to the drawing board and find some other folks. Nobody said that. It just happened. They believed and they were of one heart and one soul. Why? Because their heart and soul had been changed by the same spirit this happened because Christ, prior to His death, prayed for this very thing. John 17, 11, He said, Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And verse 23 of that same prayer, that they may become perfectly one. He prays for a unity that is comparable to the unity between the Father and the Son. That thought makes me want to go and, and explain again Jonathan Edwards' view on the Holy Spirit being the manifestation of the love between the Father and the Son. We, having been given the same Spirit, now have the same unity that the Father and the Son have by that same Spirit, but I won't go there. And he also said, Christ said, this is, will be an easily recognizable trait among the saints. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not if you are able to get together and everybody across the board can clearly articulate all of the doctrines of the faith according to the Reformed creeds and confessions and give all of the Scripture references down the line, everybody marking the same T's and the same I's. Now, that does not mean that they had no unity of truth because we've seen this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were still being taught. It wasn't an immediate fullness of all of the same truth. It was a unity of heart and soul desiring after the doctrine, the teaching of the apostles. There were commonly held beliefs. Make no mistake about it. But there was a lot they had to learn. And their desire, because they were of one heart and one soul, their desire was to learn all of that stuff together. And as some would come to a particular doctrine, probably a very important doctrine that maybe they had never considered, if they rejected that doctrine, well, the church would have said, well, then you're out. You, you've, you've, we've got a mistake here. But the true believers grew together immediately. So along the same real lines of redemption as a change of nature in a person as drastic as the Bible uses the language of life and death, along those same rail lines are this rail car of corporate unity. An unbeliever will not love the saints. A true believer will love the saints. It's that simple. There's some, something in a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit, at some point says, speaking of the believers, these people, their lives, their future their spiritual condition, their children, it all matters to me. I don't know these people. I haven't known them very long. For some reason it matters. All of a sudden, it matters. Before being converted, spiritual matters were taboo. Your spiritual life is yours and mine is mine and we don't talk about these things in the world. We just keep our mouths closed about spiritual things. We don't want to step on anybody's toes. But when I became a Christian, all of a sudden, all of that need to know basis, I need to know. I want to know what's going on with you and your family and your children. That happens in the life of a believer. They, they close their eyes to pray and they can't even get out enough prayers for one person in the body because before their eyes are flashing every other face in the congregation, all of the children, all of their futures, all of the, the things that you have discussed in conversation because you love them. That happens to a Christian because of Christ's Spirit that's put inside every believer. But as we continue down this Pathway, we're reminded that simply because this decisive change has been made, that doesn't mean we're immediately perfected. It's simply a reality that just as a believer retains the remnants of their corruption, those remnants are only multiplied when you get a bunch of those believers together. As our confession says, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Why? because the purest saints under heaven are subject to mixture and error. We still have this corruption within us. James writing to churches. in James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? Believers, Christians, saints of God, still have sinful passions warring within them. And when we are led by our passions, we're going to quarrel and we're going to fight and we're going to defend ourselves and our preferences. Back to the text that I read last Lord's Day in preparing for the table. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, why was it? Difference of opinion. Warring passions. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I think I kind of like Cephas. I don't need any earthly teachers. I follow Jesus. And he says, that's why you're quarreling. You're picking your favorites your personal preferences are warring within you in the church now not only do we continue with these fleshly passions add to that the fact that different saints grow at different paces and very often even in a congregation this small i was telling my kids i think it was case this week that sometimes i'll i'll go to meetings and men will talking about their church and they'll say oh, we got a really small congregation i mean it's 70 or 80 po- folks and i think you don't know small Even in this small congregation, there is a broad selection of saints at different places in their sanctification. We have weak saints and strong saints. We have some who are as bold as lions. We have some who are as timid as lambs. Some who are burning and shining lights. And then others who are smoking flax. And if we don't remember that, there's going to be war. There's there's going to be trouble. John Murray, I've been amazed at how his, his stuff on sanctification has kind of blurred together, in my brain at least, with this work on church unity. But he says, there are babes in Christ, there are young men, there are old men. And what monstrosities and tragedies have marred the witness of the church by failure to take into account the law of growth. In other words, if we think we're all going to get together and all of a sudden everybody's on the same page and everybody's going together and nobody's left behind and we're just moving forward, we're going to trample people. Christ did not drive people that way. So what does unity look like in that regard? Romans 14.1 As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then Romans 15.1 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. An obligation. You think you're strong? You think you're spiritual? Then find a weak saint. Take their hand and walk with them slowly and show. Prove how strong you are in the faith. Bear with their failings. So there's remaining corruption. There's varying growth processes. Add to that worldly people who cause divisions. We saw that last week from Titus 3, a person who stirs up division. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 1, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They come in secretly. They bring in secret heresies that destroy. Paul said in Acts 20, To the Ephesian elders, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from, from among your own selves. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In the gathered saints, from among that number, he says, there are going to be men in that congregation. They're going to rise up. They're going to draw away disciples after themselves. Who's it going to be in this room? This is a reality of what we call the church militant. Imperfect saints, imperfect world, wolves and false teachers. As we often sing, though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. We, we live in this timeline between or at the point of the timeline between the two advents of our Lord where the devil knows he's been defeated. He knows his time is short. He's not going to pull any punches in bringing whatever he has to into every congregation to cause division. This is a reality. And so what do we do? We deal with it. We deal with this remaining corruption. Just like the individual believer has to mortify their flesh and put on Christ, so also the church as a body has to constantly be putting off things that are causing division and put on unity. Deal with the issues. We live in a day when nobody wants to deal with issues. Everybody wants to sweep them under the rug. Pretend like they're not there. There's always a putting off. We... Read Titus 3, Romans 16, people who cause divisions, warn them once, warn warn them twice, have nothing to do with them, mark them and avoid them. People, not just ideas, but people. We have to personally mortify our passions and our lusts and our opinions. If they don't matter, then we can't let that drive a wedge between us and the brothers. But then there's also a positive putting on unity. Paul says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect Harmony. Putting off and putting on. Always watchful. Jealous of the unity. Watchful of things that might cause division. prevent Things that might prevent unity and take action. We see an example of this in 3 John. John says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to. And puts them out of the church. Diotrephes. He rejects apostolic authority. He denies entrance into the church to true Christians and also the believers in the church who want to welcome the true Christians. He expels them out of the church. John says, as a leader, taking responsibility, when I get there, I'm going to deal with it. That's what has to be done, especially by the leadership. But the congregation can take these things seriously as well. The point is that the reality of remaining corruption in an individual produces the existence of corruption in the church. and This often causes division and discord. And if we desire unity, we have to act. We can't sweep stuff under the rug. We can't pretend like it's not there. Fight for unity. Faithful of the wounds of a friend. Love the rebukes of a friend if need be. Deal with problems. And again, these are our marching orders until our king returns. We've been given the responsibility to maintain the purity of this bride through his power. And of course, the final signpost that we passed is the one within the city limits of glory. In glory, when all the saints are individually freed from corruption... So also, the entire body will be together and will enjoy eternal glorified unity in the presence of Christ. We see this in Scripture in two ways. First, Christ's present goal for His bride. And second, the language that's used to describe the glorified church. Notice how Paul describes the Lord Jesus' present goal for His bride. In Ephesians 5. We know this text well. Husbands, love your wives. Here's our model. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Why? That He might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave up Himself this end, that his bride would be holy. The language is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's an open-ended sermon right there. We know what a spot is. We know what a wrinkle is. These are defects that one would find in a garment. I think perhaps here it's perfectly suitable to imagine a wedding garment, a wedding gown. Spot, wrinkle, any such thing. What would be considered any such thing in a garment like a wedding dress? Ladies, how many of you would be pleased to find out just as you're getting dressed for your wedding that the sleeves of your wedding dress are not attached? Or perhaps the train of your gown is in shreds. Or perhaps the lace and the buttons were in a separate bag that said some assembly required. And you didn't notice that you're about to walk down the aisle. You would be devastated because unity is pretty important in a garment like that. You, you want it to be together. I would consider rips, tears, missing pieces in the category of any such thing along with spots and wrinkles. Again, that's depending on how picky you are about your clothing. That's an open-ended sermon. Any such thing. What Paul's saying is Christ Jesus bled and died to set apart a people. He ever lives to make intercession for that people, sending His Holy Spirit to sanctify that people so that in glory there will be no spot, no blemish, no wrinkle, no such thing. No rips, no tears in the garment of His bride, which is His own righteousness. And it will be so. We know that because we actually have the end of the story. We see the language that is used to describe the glorified church. In Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. She is adorned as a bride prepared, and there's no need for work. It doesn't say the, that... She's prepared herself with some minor alterations that need to be done to the dress before she's actually ready. There's no need for any patchwork. She's ready at that point. Revelation 21. Another side of the same picture. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Notice it's the bride... The wife. One, one wife, one bride, one church without division. But then He carried, it says, He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Again, we see the language, the city, one city, If we continue reading, we'll see that it has walls and gates and foundations and precious stones, but they all come together to form one city. So clearly there's great diversity of parts and functions, but there's no division. Every part comes together to form an impregnable fortress that is the bride of Christ. So there's going to come a day when we don't have to labor for unity anymore. Remaining corruption will be gone. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers will be banished to everlasting burnings. Perfect, unending unity will exist into eternity. Jonathan Edwards, in his work called Heaven, a World of Love, gives this is one of his headings. There shall be nothing external in heaven to keep its inhabitants at a distance from each other or to hinder their most perfect enjoyment of each other's love. And then here's what he says. There shall be no wall of separation in heaven to keep the saints asunder, nor shall they be hindered from the full and complete enjoyment of each other's love by distance of habitation. For they shall all be together as one family in their heavenly Father's house nor shall there be any want of full acquaintance to hinder the greatest possible intimacy. And much less shall there be any misunderstanding between them or misinterpreting things that are said or done by each other. There shall be no disunion through difference of temper or manners or circumstances or from various opinions or interests or feelings Or alliances, we get the the feeling that Edwards had spent some time in a local church. He says, but all shall be united in the same interests, and all alike allied to the same Savior, and all employed in the same business, serving and glorifying the same God. That written by a man who served that congregation for decades, and then they voted him out. But he had something greater to look forward to. He knew these things existed in the church on earth. So this is our end. Ought we not to labor to see at least a piece of its fruition on the earth? Christ taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Should it not be our concern? Would would we not all benefit if we set aside difference of temper, manner, manner, Circumstances, opinions, interests, feelings, set aside all of it in order to experience a taste of heaven on earth. It's amazing to me the many people people who would rather hold on to their opinions, cling to their personality, or make excuses rather than lay it all aside. And say, I think I would like to experience a little bit of heaven instead of constantly living in my own hell inside my personality and my excuses. For this type of people, they they dream of heaven, but for them, heaven has to be an eternity of God prying from them the things that they would never want to let go of because they won't give it up here. For those, if that's you, you don't desire heaven. You don't want to be there. You're going to be sorely upset. And that's why it is that those who don't love the brothers don't know God, don't love God. They're the children of the devil and they're going to spend eternity away from His presence. They don't want it here now. They won't want it then. So hopefully you can see unity in the body is one of these many traits that we can take the text and we can sort of trace it along this pathway of redemption from our condition in Adam all the way through to glory and we can use it to sort of analyze, assess our location. So based on these clear signposts in the Word of God, as it deals with the issue of unity in the body, where are you at? Where are you on the pathway of redemption? You might say having heard all of that, having seen the text, I'm a lost person. Everything you just described is completely beyond my experience. If that's you, you don't love the saints. Your arm has to be twisted to get you to the church to gather with the body. It's like pulling teeth for anybody to see you outside of a Sunday gathering. You will meet the least possible expectations to maintain face amongst the believers When you're at church, you can see a unity between others that you don't have. And you know you don't have it. Or maybe you do get along with everybody, but it's all superficial. It's the same as it is at work. You go to work Monday through Friday, same experience. I can get along with people. I can be in the same room as people. The source of all that has nothing to do with your personality. It has nothing to do with your culture. It has nothing to do with your upbringing. It has nothing to do with past church experiences. It has nothing to do with somebody has or has not said to you or the way they said or said it. It has everything to do with the fact that you don't love Jesus Christ. You don't love Him. You've never met Him. You've never been born again. The only excuses you can come up with are essentially, I'm still who I used to be. Well, it's just my personality. Right, because you're still dead in trespasses and sins. You're making excuses. Right, because there's never been a a change. You don't see anything in these people that unites your soul to them. And you might can polish up on a Sunday. You might can put on a good smile. You might be able to muster up the common two-faced southern hospitality that is prevalent in this area. You know, everybody's so nice when you're around them. And they gossip about you right behind your back. They've never met Christ. It's just the way they were raised to be nice. They know nothing of the unity of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. If that's you, turn to Christ. Repent. He can change you. Let go of your excuses, let go of your personality, let go of whatever hurt you've experienced. So many people have been church hurt. And that's their excuse to never step foot inside another gathering of a body of saints. That's called having the appearance of godliness but denying the power thereof. God can't overcome my hurt feelings. For once, you have to recognize that you are not the center of the universe. God is. Christ is. And whatever has happened to me, whatever my upbringing, my background, my personality, all of that has to go away. I've died. I'm serving another. These are His people. I'm serving His people. There's no way to get around it. Today's the day of salvation. He can fix personalities. He can change your typical bent. Or you might say, based on what you've said, I'm a Christian, but I realize that I have these remaining passions, these quarrels, that start. Maybe, they're, maybe they're just in your mind. But it's a passion. It comes up. You love the brethren, but you recognize that there are still things in you that you have to deal with. So then what is your response? What's the next pinpoint on the map? Deal with the corruptions. Put to death your flesh. The, the, the remnants of corruption in a believer are the remnants of the same things very often in, in an unbeliever. It's the same issues, but you deal with them differently. You have to continue dying to yourself, again, dying to your personality, dying to your preferences, and put on Christ. Christ humbled Himself and took the form of a servant. What ought I to do? Humble myself and take the form of a servant. Take note of people's personal spiritual condition. Treat one another with sympathy and tenderness. This is what Christ did. We put on Christ and maintain that trajectory. Guard against the onslaught of the evil one who loves to stir up division, loves to plant seeds of discord in our minds or even people. Figure out where you are, identify the passions, whatever it is, and deal with it. Again, we we live in this time when nobody wants to deal with anything. They might like, To occasionally admit it, oh yeah, I guess I'm kind of like and that's it. Doesn't fix anything. Deal with it. Bring it to the Lord. Let's pray.